Well, good evening. I invite you to turn with me again to Psalm 73 in your copy of the Holy Scripture, Psalm 73. It was in the summer of 2019 that I preached a series of topical messages in conjunction with our Home Bible Fellowship program titled Issues of the Heart. And that summer series found its source in Proverbs 4, verse 23, which says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. And that summer, you'll recall, I preached a a message about a heart of worry, another message about a heart of anger, another about a heart of worship and a heart of forgiveness and a heart of gratitude and purity and brokenness and strength. Preached a message titled, A Heart of Strength from Psalm 73. I found the key verse there from that study in Psalm 73 Verse 26, we read it just a moment ago. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Perhaps you have Psalm 73 verse 26 highlighted in your Bibles or underscored in your Bibles. If not, it's worth highlighting or underscoring because it should serve as a personal and powerful testimony for all of us in our life experience. But here we are again now in Psalm 73. And the man who authored this psalm was one of King David's three chief musicians. He was responsible for music and and worship there in the the tabernacle or then the temple. In 2 Chronicles, the Bible tells us that he was a Levite that performed the dedication of Solomon's temple. 2 Chronicles 5, verse number 12. Asaph was a spiritual leader, a worship leader in Israel to be sure, but he had a secret struggle. He had a painful despondency that would, we would never know about if he hadn't written it down and put it in musical form. And Asaph's struggle was a perception or a misperception that came from a limited perspective, a flawed perspective on the circumstances of his life. And so this evening from Psalm 73, a familiar psalm to us, a new message, Perception Makes Perspective. Let's, let's pray. God in heaven, I ask that you would go before us now in our study of Psalm 73. I pray, Lord, that you will be our teacher. Lord, that you would confront us not just with our perspective or our perception, but Lord, our faith in you. May we not walk by sight because of the flawed eyesight that we all have in seeing the circumstances of this life, but Lord, may we look to you with the eyes of faith and trust you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Those of you that picked up notes there in the foyer, I have perception makes perspective. Do you have that printed there in your notes? That is inaccurate. That needs to say perspective makes perception. So let's reverse that right as we begin, and I think we'll, we'll do better. The notion of perspective, perspective dictates our perception about a matter. Think with me about the notion of perspective this evening. It's an angle of eyesight. It's a point of view that gives us the interpretation of a reality. And the, the great ex- example that, that I, I could give you, I've given it to you before, is imagine that I drew a number on the floor and I had you stand on one end of that number and I had your spouse stand on the other end of that number. 
and I ask you to identify the number, and I ask you first to look at the number, tell me what I've written on the floor, and you would, you would say to me, well, you've written the number six. That's a six. Then I would ask your spouse, who's standing at the other end of that number, what number have I written on the floor? And your spouse would say, that is the number, number nine. Now, who's right and who's wrong in that circumstance? I mean, this is marriage 101, right? Because of different perspective, we have a different perception or interpretation of reality. And so many times, uh, numbered cards will have a line underneath the number six or underneath the, the number nine so that we can read clearly that number and orient ourselves as a reader to the, to the right perspective that creates a right perception or misperception of reality. And so it is in our own lives that, that our limited perspective or our different perspective creates a false reality in our minds. Perhaps we have a blind spot or perhaps we have tunnel vision or perhaps we, we can only see one side of the story that leads us to a misunderstanding which causes us to come to a false conclusion. And folks, this is where the rubber meets the road in our our lives, and we are confronted by this so often. That's exactly Asaph's struggle before us in Psalm 73. His perspective made a perception, and his limited perspective, his short-sightedness, created a faulty perception. I've identified 10 struggles that Asaph had here in these verses and have given them to you as as questions that he wouldn't dare ask and questions that we wouldn't dare ask. And I've given you blanks there in your notes. You're gonna have to crowd in these questions and, and perhaps use the white space in the margin. I've got more than there is room for you to write. But let's begin in verses one and two. Asaph, truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, here's my story. My feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And so Asaph's theology is rock solid in verse number one. That is, Asaph knew that God was good. However, Asaph's view of life circumstance gave him the perception that threatened to dismantle his theology. God is good in verse number one, but... God's goodness is suspect to him in verse number two. In the modern vernacular, we might ask ourselves, why does God treat others better than me? That's number one. Here's here's his first question of misgiving. I know that God is good to Israel, but what about me? And the question we ask is, why does God treat others better than he treats me? So here at the the very beginning of the psalm, Asaph admits that this was a close call. He had come to the edge, to the brink. He had nearly crashed and burned in this misgiving. Why does everyone else experience God's goodness and blessing when I can't even make it through the day? Why is God's goodness and blessing showered upon all of my Christian friends, in this case, upon the nation of Israel? But as for me, not so. Everyone else has a good spouse, a good job, healthy kids, but as for me, my life is a disaster. And truth be known, I came very close to giving it all up, to throwing in the towel and turning away from God. The forbidden question 
that we would never utter ourselves. Why is it that God treats everyone better than he treats me? Verse number three, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph is saying, number two, why does everyone else prosper but not me? Or why do I have financial difficulties when no one else has financial difficulties? Whatever you can capture there from verse number three. And notice that Asaph isn't upset that just anyone else is prospering, but specifically the boastful or the arrogant ones are prosperous. Doesn't it just frost you when the egomaniacs of our world do well and the wicked ones win and the the people never turn around and give God the glory but they flaunt their own success and they, they strut their own success. And you think, you know, I'm committed to giving God a tithe, 10% of all my increase. I'm committed to to living ethically and with integrity with my finance and and with my affairs. If, If I didn't have to live like a believer in the the Judeo-Christian ethic that's put forward to us in the scripture, I could prosper so much more. Why do I have financial difficulties that others don't seem to have? Verse number four, for there are no pains in their death, but their strength is firm. Number three, why do other people enjoy physical health? And why am I sick or ill or suffering? I look at all these other people and their their bodies and their health and their strength is firm up until the day they die. In In fact, the ESV, if you're carrying the ESV, it says that their bodies are fat and sleek. Do you see it there? That's quite a combination. To be fat and sleek at the same time, it seems to me, you might say, that every day I have aches and pains and what doesn't add up is I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't, I don't use non-prescription drugs, I don't live in moral lives, and yet I've still been diagnosed with this or that, or I still suffer in some physical way. Why do other people enjoy good health? And why am I sickly? Verse number five. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Question number four. Why do unspiritual people seem to have no trouble. Unspiritual people seem to have no trouble. In in his classic commentary on the Psalms, Charles Spurgeon, it's it's a series called The Treasury of David, but Charles Spurgeon says this, and if you'll excuse some of the the, the older vocabulary, he writes, the prosperous wicked escape the killing toils which afflict the mass of mankind. Their bread comes to them without care, their wine without stint. They have no need to ask, where shall we get bread for our children or raiment for our little ones? Ordinary domestic and personal troubles do not appear to molest them. Fierce trials do not assail them. They smart not under the divine rod. While many saints are both poor and afflicted, the prosperous sinner is neither. That is, the unspiritual man is worse than other men, and yet he is better off He plows his field least, and yet he has the most crops. He deserves the hottest hell, and yet he has the warmest nest. Why is it that unspiritual, ungodly people appear to have a trouble-free life? Or if they do have trouble, seems like they can simply buy their way out of their trouble because they're so rich, which is number two, question number two, right? 
Why am I having financial trouble? Look at verses six and seven. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than the heart could wish. Question five, why do evil people get away with their sin? Why do the evil get away with their sin? They, they never seem to get caught. Explain this to David who has been pursued by King Saul for years. Explain this to the underground church in China who face daily the threat of martyrdom. It is the people who deserve perdition that seem to enjoy prosperity. There, number five, why do the evil people get away with their sin, like with immunity? Verses eight and nine. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily to set their mouth against the heavens. Their tongue walks through the earth. Question six, why do ungodly people gain prominence? Why are they the prominent ones? And the people of God are ignored. Why do they get all the media attention? Or why are they the ones quoted and promoted when they are the ones that hate God. Verses 10 and 11, therefore, his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them and they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? They're questioning or taunting whether God is even aware of their sin. Question number seven, why doesn't God judge them and silence them, the, the wicked? Why doesn't God judge or silence the wicked. Perhaps you've heard of the, the great agnostic Bob Ingersoll. Bob Ingersoll would stand on a stage before thousands of people and take out his pocket watch and he would say, if there is a God, let him strike me dead in 30 seconds. And then he would start his stopwatch and he would stand there before the crowd and at the end of 30 seconds, he would say, see, there is no God. Because if there was a God, he would have struck me dead in these 30 seconds. Why doesn't God silence the wicked or judge the wicked person? Verse number 12, behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches Question eight, why doesn't my commitment to Christ make my life any easier? My commitment to the things of God, why doesn't it make my life any easier? Like the ungodly in verse 12 who are always at ease, always increasing in riches. They take a vacation and I'm stuck serving the Lord. In fact, if I remember correctly, it seems that from the time I committed my life to Christ, it's been more difficult than before. How about that misgiving? Verse 13, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. Question number nine, is living for God really worth the effort? Was it worth it? In Asaph's sincerity and purity here doesn't seem to give him any advantage. Living for God doesn't necessarily help get the promotion. Verse 14, 
For all day long I have been plagued and, ch- and chastened every morning. Question number 10, is living for God worth the trouble? Is living for God worth the trouble? It's crowns for sinners and I have a cross. Sinners are singing and I am sighing every day in the course of life. The questions, why does God treat others better than me? Number two, why do I have financial difficulties? Others are are prospering. Number three, why are others healthier than me? Number four, why do unspiritual people have no trouble? Number five, why do evil people get away with their sin? Number six, why do ungodly people gain prominence? I'm ignored. Number seven, why doesn't God silence the the, the wicked? Number eight, why doesn't my commitment to follow the Lord make life easier? Nine and 10, is living for God really worth it? Is living for God worth the trouble? And these are the forbidden questions of the psalmist Asaph. If, if anyone has ever summed up the struggle of our experience as the people of God, it might be Asaph here. These are questions that at some point we've asked in our lives, but we've asked them secretly. They are private pains. They are private secret struggles. Look at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus. If I purposed to declare these things, verse 15, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. So Asaph can't say what he's thinking or or reveal how he's feeling. He can't utter these things because people are looking to him as a leader, as an example of a spiritual model. And so he has to fake it on Sundays, if you will. Can you understand his his torments? And much of what we just read here is self-explanatory, but it's clear that Asaph is tormented by these misgivings and these resentments about his circumstances, and he's experiencing this crisis because of a faulty perspective what he sees with his eyes, beginning back in verse number three, when I saw the prosperity of the, the wicked. So then, what is the solution? The solution is, if you think it's a number six, but it's not, then walk around the other side and realize that it's a number nine. If you simply change your perspective, it will correct everything for you. But I would say no. In fact, no, that reduces our interpretation of life to what we can see. And if, if life is a matter of walking by sight, then we simply need to change our view. But follow me this, in this. I submit that most often we cannot correct our perspective because we cannot see beyond what we can't see in the flesh. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. I don't have a crystal ball to see beyond this very moment. I have blind spots in my life. I don't have eyes on the back of my head. My peripheral vision only goes so, so far. My limited, uh, finite understanding cannot interpret every circumstance. So what do I do? Do I change my perspective? No. I submit that we must walk by faith and not by sight. And so while perspective makes perception, human perspective will always be flawed 
and our human perception will always be flawed. We must walk by faith and not by sight. And, and so this is really a, a matter of, of character. Go back to verse number three. I, I want to identify some character flaws in the man Asaph that led him to have this faulty perspective. Back in verse number three, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We could say, well, you just need to change your perspective. Everything is relative. If you look at it from the other way, then, then it won't be so bad. But what's the problem in verse number three? His first character flaw, number one, is sinful envy. Sinful envy, number one. It's bad enough that Asaph is dealing with these struggles, but, but at the same time he goes to the temple, he, I, I'm, I'm sorry, um, but at the same time he sees these people and, and he's envious in his heart. Shakespeare called envy the green sickness. Francis Bacon wrote of envy that it took no holidays. One man said, tyrants never invented a greater torment than envy. Now, what is the difference between envy and jealousy? Jealousy wants to be as well off as the other person. I want what you have. But envy wants to have what the other has for themselves without the other also having it. You see, jealousy, I want what you have. Envy, I want what you have without you having that. It's even a, a, a more grave matter, and that was Asaph's problem. He wanted to take from the wicked so they wouldn't have it, but that he would have it. And do you know what the Bible says about envy? The Bible says it is the rottenness of our bones. Psalm 37 verse one explicitly tells us to, to fret not because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. And so here Asaph doesn't simply need to change his perspective. He has got a, a heart problem with sinful envy. Secondly, a second character flaw, verse 15, look there. If I had said, if I went public with my true thinking and feeling and said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. I would call this character flaw number two, it's spiritual pride. Spiritual pride, it's bad enough that, that he's dealing with these struggles, but when he goes into the temple, he leads people in singing and worship. He's a, a spiritual leader among people, yet doubting the goodness of God in his own life. And he can't say anything about how he, he really thinks or really feels because of the perceptions and the expectations that people have of him. Asaph is supposed to model spirituality. And I think we're in danger of this as well. We might face this very same error. We are the Sunday night crowd. We are longtime believers. We're core members. It would be scandalous to publicly acknowledge our crisis. Spiritual pride, there was sinful envy. Spiritual pride, there's a third character flaw. And that's in verse 21. Look there, 21. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. Number three, selfish bitterness. Now you say, well, wait a minute. That doesn't sound so bad, verse 29, 21. Thus my heart was grieved, I was vexed in my mind. How about the ESV's rendering of verse 21? I'll read it for you. Verse 21 in the ESV, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart. A selfish bitterness. 
The, the words there, grieved in my New King James or embittered in the ESV, it's the same word translated other places, leavened or soured. It's the same word translated vinegar. In the Old Testament, it speaks figuratively of, a, of, of the cruelty of a dying man who was given vinegar in his dying hour. Then you see the word mind there in verse 21. I was vexed in my mind or my heart is how the ESV translate that at the end of verse 21. It's, it's actually the word kidneys. <laughs> and in the, the ancient world, the kidneys were recognized as the seat and center of one's emotions. We might use the term gut or heart. So no matter how you translate it, Asaph is admitting a bitterness in his soul and his bitterness is a consequence of selfishness being dissatisfied. Did you catch that? My selfishness is unsatisfied or dissatisfied. And that bitterness, what I've often defined as harbored hurt, is, is something that we all battle. It's not wrong to hurt. We will all hurt at some point in some way, but when we harbor that hurt, it becomes bitterness. It's a, it's a selfish dissatisfaction and I think bitterness can occur in two ways. One is, I wanted it and God said no. I wanted it and God said no. That's the, the story of Hannah who prayed in bitterness of soul. I want a son, but I don't have a son. I wanted it and God said no. And then the flip side of that is I had it and God took it away. And that's the story of Job. He cried out in bitterness of soul, the Bible says. He lost all that he had. I had it and God took it away. So I wanted it and God said no. I had it and God took it away. And there is the bitterness of spirit because our selfishness is not satisfied. And that's what's happening there in verse 21. Look at verse 22. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Character flaw number four searching aimlessly. He's like a beast. Um, our family um, has a dog. Have I ever told you we have a dog? We have a dog. We also have a cat. And our cat sleeps most of the time. And when our cat is not sleeping, do you know what our cat does? Our cat walks aimlessly around the house. For no reason, room to room, rubbing up against every table leg and corner and, and such and sniffing at things and looking curiously where there is nothing to find and um, going nowhere. And um, I don't understand cats. I don't appreciate dogs and I don't understand cats. They are beasts. And here in verse 22, the, the psalmist Asaph says, I was like a beast before you. I'm wandering aimlessly around, foolishly ignorant of all that's happening. And it's common for man to do the very same thing, to always be looking for something else to satisfy their curiosity. And like Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, we experiment with every earthly pleasure and we try everything and we're still left wanting and it's emptiness 
and vanity to us. The reality is in verse 23 and 24, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. We just sang of the the guidance of Jehovah and afterward receive me into glory. God is with us, God leads us, he guides us, he counsels us. Okay, Asaph had misgivings. He had questions about his condition and his circumstances and I believe it was not just because because of a flawed perspective that gave him a flawed perception, but it was because of a flawed character as is acknowledged here or at least revealed to us in his path back to communion with God. Number one, your notes are over on the back side. His restoration for, to full communion or fellowship with God. Number one, Asaph began to recognize the horror of a sinner's future. He began to recognize the horror of a sinner's future. Look at verse 17 again. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. And so Asaph's perception of reality is refrained reframed because he's able now to see the consequences of God's judgment, the ruin of the wicked. And verse 20 explains that that the wicked are living a dream, a fantasy that will turn into a nightmare of eternal punishments. And with the eyes of faith, we must see, the proper perspective is to see the horror of a sinner's future and that will correct our perception. You've heard of the classic sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, that Jonathan Edwards preached from Deuteronomy 32, 35, which says, their foot shall slide in due time. And I've copied for you there what Jonathan Edwards preached. He said this, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much in the same way as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as a worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear, to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent is in ours. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. Oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. How's that for some perspective on the consequence of the sinner's future and recognizing the horror that is in store for the sinner. Asaph began to recognize that horror. Secondly, Asaph began to relinquish to God the right to judge the unbeliever. Look with me at verse 20. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Look at verse 27. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. 
Asaph began to relinquish to God the right to judge. God is God, we are not. It's his business what he purposes to do. On occasion I, I hear of the success or, or the promotion of the wicked, perhaps someone into political office, perhaps a cultural celebrity, and I think, God, just take them out. Take them out of this world, do you know what I mean? But that's not my call to make. It's God's call to make, and in his time, he will judge righteously. Number three, Asaph began to recognize what he had been given by God. His perspective is changing. He's recognizing what he's been given by God. Verse 23, look there. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. That's companionship with God. God reaches down and takes our hand because we don't even have the strength to raise it up. He's with us in companionship. Verse 24, you will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. I, I would say that's the counsel from God. There's companionship with God, verse 23. There's counsel from God, verse 24. And when bad things happen to bad people, where do they go? When your neighbors have a crisis, where do they go? They go to, to Google? They go to a psychiatrist or psychologist or a, a shrink or a, you can go to God. And the counsel that he guides you with. Then number four, Asaph began to relish his relationship with God. Number four, began to relish his relationship with God. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? There is none upon the earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Look at verse 28. It is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Folks, Asaph's world didn't change. Asaph's circumstances didn't get fixed. But Asaph changed. His perspective changed. His perception changed because he saw through the eyes of faith. And that made all the difference in the world. Now, I think I've shared this with you before, but the opposite of Psalm 73 is Psalm 37. So go with me to Psalm 37 and we'll conclude with this. Psalm 37. We have Psalm 73 in our minds. The story of Asaph, but now in Psalm, 70, um, Psalm 37. I'll just read the, the early verses and find the antithesis here, the opposite of Psalm 73. Psalm 37 verse one, do not fret because of evildoers nor be envious of the wor workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, feed on his faithfulness, delight yourself in the Lord, he shall give you the desires of your heart. 
Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. And we could continue to read. Let's pray. God, thank you for the transparency and the honesty of Asaph in Psalm 73. Lord, he revealed his forbidden questions, his misgivings. Lord, because he was looking at others with his human eyes. Lord, his perspective needed to change, but it needed to change to a heavenly perspective. I pray that you would help us to see through the eyes of faith and Lord, to trust you each and every day. For I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.